0: We'll make a start this morning. We we'll welcome each one to Adult Sunday School and we'll we'll seek the Lord in prayer. Eternal God and Father in Heaven, we thank thee this morning. We can come afresh into thy presence. We can look to thee. We can come and lay before thee the needs of this day as well. And Father, we remember the Sunday school downstairs, bless, we ask of Remember ourselves here as we continue this look at history and especially teach us us that we would value the great doctrine of Scripture concerning our Lord and Savior. Worship services as well. May we worship thee in spirit and in truth, rejoicing in all that thou hast done for us. Bless us this day. Do our hearts good, meet our needs. And Father, may we even understand from what we have here the importance of holding fast to Thy truth and of valuing. Do us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. 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 I'm going to turn in the Scriptures to John's Gospel, chapter 1. chapter 1, many years ago, probably 32 years ago, I received a plaque, I have it uh, somewhere back in Northern Ireland, uh, a plaque in the 15 verses of John chapter 1, and the children's meeting that we attended, the memory verse each week, was John chapter 1, and if you could, at the end of the season, say all 14 verses, uh, you were presented with a plaque. And so, I, I did that. I enjoyed learning it. And I remember, I think it was one of the very first passages uh, that as a child I'd ever learned. Uh, but we're going to read it. We're not going to recite it from memory this morning. Uh, the memory is maybe not quite as sharp now as it was back then. Uh, but John's Gospel, chapter 1. Important as Matthew's gospel, we have the incarnation of Christ, Christ becoming God in the flesh, becoming man. Here in John, we have his eternal sonship in view. He was always the Son of God. Uh, We believe in the eternality of God, and we also believe in the eternal nature or the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that ties into Arianism uh, in the sense of that they reject that. And as we read old sermon from 2010 last week, uh, what he said is similar to what we'll say today. In some ways, we'll maybe go a little further uh, at the end, uh, but uh, the summary is quite similar. But it's this truth, the truth of John 1, the eternal sonship of Christ that the Aryan rejects, and says this isn't true, this isn't real, this doesn't happen. And they take the Word of God and say it doesn't mean Christ is Centre of that land. That was the truth which lighteth cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world knew him. and the world knew not, knew, and the world knew not as many as received him, to them gave he power to become God, even to them that believe on his name. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the flesh. Held his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of peace and truth. Amen. And may the Lord bless (coughs) the reading of his precious and inerrant word uh, this morning. And so in these verses, we have the word, uh, the word there in the authorized version had better. In the beginning, was the word, and the emphasis there being on the Savior, the eternal Logos, uh, the one who is the word of God. He was with God in the beginning, all things were made by Him. In Him was light, was the light of men, and we see that He is that light. And then verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And there is the incarnation of the Savior, He who is the Son of God, took upon Himself and came into this world and lived as a man. He was still the eternal Son of God, but yet He was fully man. And that is a mystery. How can that happen? How can that be? And that is in the and the decrees of God. It is a mystery, but yet that is what the Word of God teaches. The Son of God became man for us and never ceased to be God, never had a beginning, and will never have an end. So we come back to Arianism, and some of this might be a summary from last week, but we'll move through the summary part quickly. The greatest theological controversy in the early Christianity was the Arian controversy. It was a debate that focused upon one of the most vital and fundamental doctrines, which we've already emphasized this morning, is the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, or is he a mere created man? After the Emperor Constantine had reunited the Western and Eastern Empires in 324 AD, He found that there was a doctrinal dispute in the church. And that dispute had started around 318 A.D. in the city of Alexandria. And it concerned doctrine that had been promoted and taught by a man called Arius. He lived from 256 A.D. to 336 A.D. And the emperor had a desire to remove theological divisions. He had removed, as it were, the divide between east and west and now he wanted to look at that from the theological, the religious side of things, and he wanted unity. Arius was originally from what we know today as Libya. He was a presbyter in Alexandria in 330 AD. The Trinitarian historian Socrates wrote that Arius had sparked this controversy when the bishop of Alexandria, Alexander, a sermon stating uh, that the son was similar to the father. Arius believed that this was a revival of the heresy of Sabellianism. That heresy taught there's only one person in the Godhead. There's a oneness. Uh, God exists not in three persons, uh, but in one person. And Arius condemned Alexander and then concluded that if the father begat the son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. And from this, it is evident that there was a time when the Son was not. There was a time when the Son did not exist. It therefore necessarily follows that He, the Son, had His substance from nothing. He was created. Arius was popular, and he began to teach that the Father alone was God. Not the Son, not the Spirit, but the Father alone. He claimed that the eternal Logos, the Word, the Son, was a created being. By the Father. and therefore there was a time when the Son did not exist. And as he taught that the Father was the, was truly God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, the one who is self-existent, he believed he was defending the fundamental Christian doctrine that there is only one God, and the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as a divine was a move in the direction of polytheism, polytheism being many gods theism coming from the word theos, which means God in Greek, and meaning many, so many gods. And heathenism and paganism believe in polytheism. There are many gods, but Christianity believes in monotheism. There is one God in three persons, but one God. And so the bishop of Alexander exiled Arius in three hundred and twenty following the council of the local presbyters. It wasn't just his decision, but we see Presbyterianism in view here. There was a decision made by a group of presbyters. Arius' supporters protested, and many of the Christian leaders of that era supported his cause. And uh, we find then that the emperor believed that it was his duty to restore order to the church in the midst of division. He called what is known as the first ecumenical council of the church. Now we see today, being free Presbyterians, being a church, we see the word ecumenical as a bad word. If I got up and said we're going to have an ecumenical meeting next week, uh, there would be those wondering what has happened. What is the pastor doing? Because we don't do uh, those things uh, that ecumenicals do. We are not ecumenists. But this was the first ecumenical council, and it refers to that unity, it refers to it being a council that included basically representatives from the entire church. It it was a council that came together. So the use of that word ecumenical is not something that we should get very worried about in regard to this context here. Of course, if there was an ecumenical council today and it included the Catholic and the Presbyterian Church and the uniting Church and the Anglican church, and all sorts of churches, that's going to be a problem. But back then, that word simply means it was a united council. And the bishops from all over the ancient world to the city of Nicaea in 325. It's believed that around 300 bishops, the ministers, pastors were present, as well as elders. Eusebius of Nicaea wrote, and he described he said, "When the whole assembly was seated with proper dignity, silence fell on all before the emperor arrived. First, three members of his family entered, the order of rank, and then the others came in, heralding his approach. Not soldiers or guards who usually accompanied him, but friends in the faith. Then everyone stood up as the sign was given that the emperor was about to enter, and at last he himself made his way through the midst of the assembly." Looking like some heavenly emperor sorry, like some heavenly angel of covered in a garment which glittered as if it was radiant with light, reflecting the glow of his purple robe, adorned with the brilliant splendour of gold and precious stones. When he reached the upper end of the seats he remained standing at first, and when a servant had brought a low chair of wrought gold for him, he did not sit down until the bishop signalled him to do so. And then the whole assembly sat down, and we see here then the splendour. The emperor came. Uh, when we think of the splendour that he had, that was opposite, the opposite to all that Christianity had stood for. And at that point, the faith that was difficult. It was a faith in which there was not the splendour and the radiance of richness, authority. But it was a humble, lowly faith, but the emperor changed that with the splendor of his person. The emperor basically acted as the moderator of the proceedings, and there we have immediately a problem, uh, because he was leader. He was not uh, the leader within the church of Christ. A similar situation would be that there was a council the church, and Trudeau walked in and said, I'm going to chur it, or perhaps uh, King Charles III. He was going to come into the press meeting and act as a moderator. We're going to have a problem here. That's not his role in society. And of course, the question of faith is there as well. Uh, but the emperor acted as the moderator, he churred the proceedings. His advisor was Hoseus of Cordova. He was a Western bishop, he had a firm belief in the full divinity of Christ. He supported a proposal which would create a statement of faith outlining the church's belief in the full deity of Christ. And that confession was known as the Nicene Creed. It's referred to as one of the ecumenical creeds of the church. Again, the word ecumenical meaning a union. There was an agreement on this creed. And it simply says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. And you have there in bold in the notes, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of light, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, Came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Son, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And that section in bold emphasizes what this council wanted to emphasize that Christ was indeed the Son of God. He indeed was and not a man. And we continue and was crucified over for us under Pilate. He suffered and was buried in the third day. Goes again, according to the Scripture, ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of Life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one Catholic and apostolic church, Catholic meaning universal, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We have a creed that was similar in some ways to the Apostles' Creed, and we'll consider the Apostles' Creed in the future. But this creed emphasized who Christ is. His eternal sonship, his deity, and the council supported that belief that Christ is truly God and not a created being. Uh, one of the Greek words used in defining the Christ was the word, homoousia, which means the same essence. And in using that word, the council emphasized that Christ is of the same essence and has the same nature as God the Father. This truth contradicted the errors and the teachings of the council. Also, went as far as (coughs) placing an anathema into the creed. An anathema is seen as a stronger act than exhumidicating someone, it's declaring someone to not be a Christian. The council of Nicaea stated, As for those who say there was a time when he, the Logos, was not. And he was not before he was created. And he was created out of nothing or out of another thing. God is created. and anathematizes such things. In other words, Arius and those who proclaimed and promoted his teaching that Christ was created, there was this anathema placed upon them. Most of the Arians signed the creed, but Arius and two of his followers refused, and they were sent into exile. But despite the stand taken at Nicaea, the Arian controversy was far from over. It still raged throughout the 300s. The Eastern Church was still divided into various parties and sex. You had the Arians, you had the Nicenes, you had the Oregonists uh, who followed Oregon, and held that the son was not created but was inferior to the father. And the main disagreements, however, were between the Nicenes and the uh, group that supported Oregon rather than the Arians. The Oregonists believed that the Nicenes erred because they took the use of this word homoousis to imply that the son and the father were the same person. The Nicene believed that those who supported Oregon were because of their belief of the inferiority of the Son to the Father. And the Oregonists the Nicene Creed, especially because of the use of that term, Homoousius. And so it was really only the Church in Alexandria that was firmly behind the creed. And so there was all sorts of disagreements going on. I think there was a point as well. Uh, were the emperor removed the anathemas from the creed. And so, therefore, if you were to say Christ was not was created, uh, then that anathema had been removed. Athanasius became the bishop of Alexandria in 328. He was known as a hero of Nicene theology in the Christian church. And he distinguished himself in the council of Nicaea for his support of Christ's deity in the face of Arian opposition. He believed that through salvation, the gospel, Christ made people divine. And he argued that how could Christ accomplish this if he himself was not the Son of God, not God himself? And he stated in response to accusations that worshiping Christ is idolatry if he were a mere man. And he said, no one else but the Savior, who is the beginning, made everything out of nothing, to bring what had been created free from corruption. No one else but the image of the Father could create human beings in God's image. No one else but our Lord Jesus Christ who is like could give immortality to mortal humans. No one else but the Logos who imparts order to everything and is the one true and only begotten of the Father could teach us about the Father and destroy idolatry. He became human that we might become divine. He revealed himself in a body that we might see the invisible Father. He suffered a immortality. And Athanasius was known as a defender of the faith and uh, is quite a well-known father, pastor in the early church. And so that's a summary of what took place at Nicaea. Of course, one of the uh, myths or legends that comes from that conference is of uh, St. Nicholas, uh, jolly old St. Nick. It's the same person in view uh, the, the St. Nicholas who influenced the idea of Santa Claus. And so uh, Nicholas uh, was a bishop at the Council of Nicaea, and Arius was promoting his view, and the story is told that uh, Nicholas couldn't take it anymore, and so he punched him in the face. I don't know if that's true. I wasn't there. Uh, there were those who would cast doubts upon it, and say it was some sort of myth or legend. Who knows? Uh, It's an interesting story uh, nonetheless. I'm not sure uh, that we should go around uh, punching heretics, uh, but uh, uh, back then, I don't advise we go around punching heretics. We use the word and we make our arguments uh, from uh, Scripture. Then we move to the Cappadocian fathers. These men uh, were a group of important theologians. We have Basil, Gregory. We have two Gregories. They were important theologians. And in the midst of this debate between the Arianists, the Nicenes, those that supported Oregon, they sought to bring about a union between the Orthodox parties. So the Nicenes and the Oregonists bringing them together and standing apart from the Arians. And they suggested new theological language to describe the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word usia, uh, which again is coming from that word homoousius, that word should refer to the one nature being or essence of God, which father and son fully sure and equally making them one God. And then the word hypotasis, this particular and distinct form from which the divine nature exists in father and son, making them two distinct persons. And the fathers also settled the This language was used. We're not going to go into that in too much detail. But they basically defined the terms. Because these groups of individuals had different definitions themselves of what these terms meant. And so there was confusion. Of course, like the word ecumenical, as I said, if I said we're having an ecumenical meeting next week, uh, there are going to be those who, uh, or if I said our conference in Williams Lake was going to be an ecumenical conference, uh, you would wonder what's going on, and what is the Reverend Simpson and the Reverend Fitton up to? An ecumenical conference. But that could simply mean it's unity. We're coming together united. And of course, defining that term, and what we mean by that term is Extremely important. And this was part of the problem regarding all of these terms at this time. Individuals and churches and groupings and pastors had their own idea of what this word meant. And there was confusion uh, between them and disagreement between them. In 381, the Eastern Emperor Theodosius called a, another council at Nicaea, the second council. Uh, that council affirmed and extended the original Nicene Creed. And this council and the affirmation within it sparked the end of the Arian controversy. And so it came to an end for good in 381. But over the years, Arianism has raised its ugly head. And it has appeared again after the Reformation. Arian teachings resurfaced through John Asheron. He was the first English Arianon. The first one on record, probably not the first. But he was forced to recant his heresy before Thomas Cramer in 1548. Michael Servetus uh, taught anti-Trinitarianism and sought a return to the doctrine of the period preceding Nicaea. He believed that Trinitarians corrupted Christianity into a system of belief in three gods. And he believed that Christ only existed. That the Lord Jesus Christ only came existence from the time of the conception. So, he was a created being. And Michael Servetus uh, was at odds with John Calvin. He was burnt Uh, in Geneva. Uh, He uh, was put to death. death. And that is uh, quite uh, controversial. The The enemies of John Calvin would use that uh, to to say that Calvin himself was involved. But it's a very complex situation. But that is not where we are at this point in time. The teaching of the Nicene Councils are believed by the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and most of the historic Protestant churches, with the exception of those who support Unitarian views. The Unitarian Church and also the Jehovah's Witnesses would believe in Arian doctrines. And some of these doctrines may not necessarily be traced back to Arius specifically, but many of their core beliefs have a striking similarity to Arian doctrine. The Jehovah's Witnesses themselves teach that the Lord Jesus Christ is the first creation of God, and they deny the existence of the Trinity and the personality of the Holy Spirit. And so there are quite clear distinctions in what they teach. We can think of Unitarianism. Reverend Gallagher mentioned in the video we watched last week how Arianism, Unitarianism, uh, was running rampant within the Irish Presbyterian Church in the years leading up uh, to the start of the 19th century. There was a minister by the name of Henry Cook. In God's will, I think we might look at a uh, short biography of him and his stand uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, But he took a stand against Unitarianism and against Arian doctrine. And eventually, the church agreed uh, to hold ministers and elders accountable by signing Westminster Confession of Faith as a a statement of their own belief. And so we have that here, and we've had it in the past, when elders and ministers have signed that they agree that the Confession of Faith is a summary of the Christian doctrine that they believe. A public statement, this is what I believe. This is what I promise to teach. I believe it shows forth what the Word of God teaches. Of course, there were men who couldn't do that in the Presbyterian church and they formed what is known today as the non-subscribing Presbyterian church. And as I've said before, it has went down a liberal path. And basically, anything and everything is acceptable in worship and in of that particular church. When you move away from believing that Christ is God, it opens the door to all sorts of errors, all sorts of heresies that will affect your belief, your practice, and how you engage in that worship. Of course, Henry Cook himself for many years was a voice within the synod in Northern Ireland, or Ireland at that time. The synod being Grouping of Presbyteries coming together and was a lone voice, a lone man against this heresy, but God gave the victory in his time. And so when we think of the deity of Christ, you remarks finish this morning. The Reformed Church believes that Christ is fully and eternally God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches that and emphasizes the truths uh, that we have coming from the Council of Nicaea. Question 21, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be. God and man in two distinct natures, and one person forever God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever and there is this emphasis that Christ is the eternal son of God that he became man and he continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever and that is important we believe wholeheartedly in the eternal sonship of Christ but we believe wholeheartedly that he is fully man as well and that is where this great mystery is. For Question 22. How did Christ, being the Son of God, became man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. And so Christ was fully man. He did not have a fake body. He did not have a body that was unusual for a man to have. He had a true body. And there in the womb, he was born of Mary, but he was without sin. And one of the great consequences of Christ being the eternal Son of God, being incarnate in the flesh, is that he is without sin. His divine nature, his divine nature protected him from Adam's sin and from the passing down of that sin because we have sinned and that sin has passed down through Adam's generation. There are those here uh, who, who have children and the sin that Adam had was passed down to you and passed down to your children there's children here and later on when you become an adult, that sin in God's will will be passed down to your children and so on and so on. It cannot be stopped. It is part of our sinful and wicked human nature. <clears throat> but Christ was protected from all of that. He was sinless. <clears throat> he did not sin. could not sin. And so when we think of that, the great verses in Scripture that... Show us who Christ is. First Timothy 2:5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There in John 1:14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And those are verses that the Westminster Divines use to write these catechisms. Colossians 2: verse 9. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Very clear indication in Holy Scripture that Christ is unique. That He is the Son of God. Joel Becky in his Reformed Systematic Theology states, Since Christ's deity is so glorious and precious to the church's faith, we must defend it against all attacks. This doctrine has been assaulted through the centuries. And we see that at Nicaea, we see that with the JWs. We see that there, at the Irish Presbyterian Church in Henry Cook. It's a doctrine that has been assaulted because you, if you can take away the deity of Christ, you've delivered a mortal blow to his finished work, to his intercession for us, to the great efficacy of his salvation for us, because if he was not God, then how could he accomplish all of these things? Christ's deity is essential for salvation. The denial of his deity results in a self-reliance for salvation as a human Christ cannot save. Christ's deity is essential for the kingdom of God among men. It is his kingdom, his church. He he reigns. He is our king. He is our God. Christ's deity is essential for evangelism. He is the great Savior who is proclaimed He can truly save. And if we go out and tell others of Christ and tell others of the Savior and they say, well, how can you know He saves? Sure, He's a man, a mere man. How can He save? How can He save, but I cannot save myself? Well, there's a difference. He is God. He's the incarnate Son of God. He's pure and spotless and sinless. That holy sacrifice that was offered up for us, his deity is essential for discipleship as well. He is uh, the great teacher, the one who loves us, the one who cares for us. John Brown said, Behold, here a teacher who utterly unlike all that had come from God before him Claims for himself the supreme affection of his disciples. Claims not for another, but for himself, the very throne of their hearts. Christ, as your Savior, claims the throne of your heart. He desires to reign within your life. That throne of your heart is his throne if you are his child. And how can he do that? What right has he to that? He's the divine Son of God. He's your Savior. He's your Savior. If we are to be faithful students of the Word, faithful servants of Christ, then we must believe and apply that truth that Christ is God. And we have the evidence of that. John 1 shows us the preexistence of Christ. Colossians 1 does that as well. There's prophecies of Him as the promised Messiah. His names and titles, we can think of Isaiah 9, verse 6, where it speaks about Him being wonderful, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. His titles imply He is divine. We have His attributes. He is holy. We have His eternity in view in the Scriptures. His infinite knowledge is in view. His omnipresence is in view. Behold, I am with you always. Matthew 28. And There are many... Divine attributes of God, and this is merely a summary, we could go into this, but there are divine attributes of God. God is self existent, God is immutable, unchangeable, and in Scripture those were applied to Christ. And if Christ was not God, that is blasphemy. The same way it would be blasphemy for me to suggest that one of you was immutable or unchangeable, or eternal or self existent. I'm taking the attribute that belongs to God alone and saying that as a mere mortal, you have that too. It's blasphemy. We're taking God's divine attributes and attribute them to men. But because Christ is God, it is not blasphemy. They are His attributes. His attributes. He is part of the Trinity as well. He's the begotten Son of the Father. And that is just a summary, stretching the surface of some of the great evidences by which He is the eternal Son of God. That He is divine. And so, dear believer, this morning, let us rejoice that the divine and sovereign God is our Savior, that Christ is our Savior, because He is God. Let us defend that truth. Let us not sit idly by when men come and say that he's a mere man. And there's people who say that. There's people who, in fiction, say those things. I may have told you before, I've definitely said in sermons in the past of a particular man, a particular author, books for children, he wrote a book about the good man, Jesus. That sounds good, doesn't it? But the other title was called The Scandal Christ. The Good Man Jesus and the Scandal Christ. And he took the person of Christ and he divided him into Jesus and Christ. And Jesus was the good man, but Christ was the scandal. And divided the person of Christ and ignored the deity of Christ. And that book, I'd heard about it. I went to the supermarket Uh, back home in Northern Ireland many, many years ago when it came out. And I picked it up. I didn't buy it. I wanted to see, you know, I was highly offended by the title. And I looked, the first couple of pages were enough to close the book and put it back. But the section on the shelf was packed full of these books. And as I put the book back, it fell behind, uh, behind the middle of the shelves. And so many years later, when they moved those, they must have found it. Nobody had that copy. Uh, But horrific that there are those in this world who hate Christ so much that they will come and they will do that. Saying those things that were in that book about a mere human is horrific. If I wrote those things about you, you would be horrified. Yet they were written about the eternal divine Son of God who came and died and gave himself for us. Oh, how the world tramples him overfoot. How the world attacks his person. That's what Arius did. He attacked the person of Christ. May we not do love him, honor him, serve him, worship him, glorify him as we ought. May the Lord bless for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee for our Savior. We thank Thee that He is the divine Son of God. Uh, We rejoice. In his deity, may we defend it, may we protect protect it uh, by our human endeavors through thy help, we pray. Lord, help us to defend it uh, by living a life that shows forth that Christ Christ is truly the Son of God. Divine and our seed. Help us
1: defend it by growing in our
0: knowledge that we know more and more about the great truths of scripture lord bless us we pray bless the services to come and may we know the outpouring of thy spirit we ask for Christ's sake.